There are some of the words that I could take a whole week just on one word. There's so much in here, but we're going to have to <laughs> put her in gear and go. So in verse number eight, we've covered verses one through seven. And very, very interesting as he starts it out and he says, God is going to speak now to us through his son. He's spoken by the prophets and, and we've covered all that pretty much in detail. But now, you know, who is the, the son? Who really is he? Do, do we really know him? And, and who he is. So this is what we're going to talk about tonight. Start out in verse number eight. The Bible says, but unto the son, he saith, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Uh, before we go on, let me stop and, and just say something. You ever wonder what the conversation between the father and the son would be like? Wouldn't you like to be there and listen to God speak to his son and the son speak to the father? God has given us such a privilege. He has written down the very conversation between the father and the son. Now start verse 8 again. But unto the son he saith, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning... Hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thine hands. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail." But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool? Are they not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Who is he? Really, who is he? He said in verses 1 and 2 that his son was better than the prophet's. Then in verses 4 through 7, he said that his son was better than the angels. But now he comes to verse number 8. Here in, in this verse, God the Father is speaking to the Son. Unto the Son, he saith. Just here, God establishes the fact that Jesus, his Son is deity. You don't have to wonder whether Jesus ever claimed to be God. God the Father just established the fact that Jesus, his son, is deity. He's declared as deity and in the same token here, he's declared 
as man. When he says in verse number nine, thy fellows, he's been raised above thy fellows, man. As he was born of a virgin in that stable in Bethlehem and then raised by parents, human parents, and, and, and all the things that he's done on earth that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of this establishes what he says right here. First, he says he is God, but he is also man. It's interesting. He's quoting here in this verse another psalm, Psalm 45 and verse 6. He says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. The conversation that God the Father is having with his own son is quoting the Old Testament. Because God does not change. His word in the Old Testament is the same in the New Testament. He's simply saying that Jesus fulfills these verses. But unto the Son, he saith, Thy throne, O God. The Father, God, speaks to the Son, Jesus Christ. He ascribes the title of God to Jesus. And back in Psalm 45, it indicates, and many people have said that in the commentaries, that he's referring to Solomon. Uh, Solomon's was not a righteous kingdom. You don't have a righteous kingdom when you got a thousand wives. You got problems. And God already told him, do not multiply wives unto yourself. And in all his wisdom, he became a fool and disobeyed and broke the very commandments that God gave him when he established him as king. So it could not be referring to Solomon, but he ascribes this to his son. He places the son as the sovereign and eternal God. He places his son Jesus above the angels above men, above creation. He places him above everything in this passage of Scripture we look at tonight. God the Father calls the Son Elohim. If a father does not know who he is, then who does? Man can claim that he's not God. Men can, like the Jehovah Witnesses, say, well, he's not God. But yet God the Father said he is. And I would much rather believe God the Father. Amen? The Son has a throne. He has a scepter. He has a kingdom. He is God. He is over all. And that kingdom, he says, is forever and ever. He's the eternal king. Eternal is eternal. You say, well, that's pretty obvious. Amen. <laughs> you would be surprised how many supposedly brilliant theologians that are, have doctorate degree after doctorate degree are as ignorant as a pencil. Pencil don't do anything until you pick it up and make your mark. 
And these people will say that eternal is not eternal. Because they say when he says, I'll give you eternal life, he only means life until you mess up. That's not what it said. The same word here, eternal, is used for Jesus Christ as the sovereign eternal God forever and ever is the same term he uses when he talks about eternal life to us. So for someone to believe that you can lose your salvation means that God himself can stop being God. That Jesus Christ could stop being eternal because eternal wouldn't mean eternal. But when he says here that he is eternal forever and ever, that sets a basis for all other doctrine that he goes ahead and teaches. His kingdom will last as long as our salvation does. And I think that it'll last a whole lot longer than, than what some people think. He says, the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. A scepter is like a flag or a standard or a symbol of royalty or sovereignty or authority. Uh, you go over there in the Middle East right now and you got people burning these flags, these symbols of authority, the symbols of government, the symbols of royalty, that scepter, whenever the, the, the king was in his, on his throne, if he did not hold out the scepter for that individual that comes in his presence, the guards would kill them. Didn't have to have a command from the king. It was just already written. If he didn't hold out his scepter, they would die immediately by his guards. That's why, that's why Esther, when she comes in and, and Mordecai says, you need to go in for such a time as this. This is what God brought you here for. And she said, if I perish, I perish. She had not been summoned to the king. She had no right to go before the king. And only if he held out his scepter and it says, as Esther entered in, that Ahasuerus held out his scepter and the guards did not kill her. And hopefully you know the rest of the story. That scepter is a scepter of righteousness. He said, that righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. He's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. His scepter is perfection. His scepter is righteousness. In our lives as his subjects, we should be people of righteousness. Simply because that's what he demands. When you go into his presence, he demands righteousness. That righteousness is used only one time. The word here, euthanasia, is only used one time. And it means immediate or straightness, rectitude, that morally correct behavior that 
whatever is according to the law. And he demanded perfection. When you're talking to somebody about their salvation, and many times they'll say, well, I'm not that bad. Uh, are, are you perfect? Well, no, nobody's perfect. God demands 100% perfection. That's why he said, if you've broken one law, you've broken all of them. You take a chain and you put the chain over there. It don't make any difference if this link breaks or if this link down here breaks or if one of them does in the middle. All it takes one and the whole chain's broken. And he said, I demand of everyone on this earth perfection. 100% perfection. And I realized one day I could not meet that perfection. But thank God when he stood in my place on Calvary, he was the very perfect son of God. The righteousness of Jesus Christ was given to me. And now as I stand before the king and he holds out that scepter, he sees the righteousness of his son, not mine. What a wonderful, wonderful illustration he's given us here. That righteous administration of perfection. Without hypocrisy, we should strive. None of us will ever be perfect. We know that in our flesh. But we should strive for perfection. What do what so many people, and we're, we're studying Christian ethics in our, our, our institute. And the one thing that always gets me is we always gravitate and try to find and use the exception. God never told us to look for the exception. He puts exceptions in there. And they are there. But why do we try to find the exception? Why do we not strive for righteousness? Because that's what his scepter demands. That's what he wants of us. We see not only the attitude of the father. Thou hast loved righteousness in verse 19. But he says, Jesus hates iniquity. And I'm afraid in our societies, in our Christian lives, we have become so involved with sin ourselves. We've been around sin so much that we don't hate sin any longer. I remember when I first got saved, boy, I, I, I was quite intolerant. And I didn't have much patience. Why? I'm just a brand new Christian. I drinking like to killed my family and me and my career and everything I had. And when God saved this old drunk, I tell you, I hated it. I still do. But I think we 
we rub shoulders with it and around it in Walmart and every the different aisles and the, the places. We talked about this today in our, our discipleship and how, how it's everywhere. But I think we've become so accustomed to it that we don't hate it near as much as we used to. The Bible says here, thou hast loved righteousness. And he says, and hated iniquity. 1 John 4, 17 says, as he is, so are we in this world. What he loves, we should love. What he hates, we should hate. But instead of standing up and speaking up and saying what we should and putting down evil and, and stopping it, whether it's the workplace or wherever it's at, we just kind of keep quiet and just let it go on and say, well, you know, they said, excuse my French. They don't speak French. You're parlant plus de Francais. But we just tolerate. And God said, Jesus hates iniquity. That's the attitude of the Father. And that is the attitude of the Son. So as you're studying the scriptures and you're looking from one side of the Bible to the other, you see the attitude of God towards wickedness. He hates lawlessness. He hates violation of the law. He hates lying. He hates all of this stuff. He loves people. He wants them saved. But he hates transgression. 93 times it says he loves righteousness. That's conformity to the claims of a higher authority. He is my authority. He is the high authority, and I'm going to submit myself to his righteousness. I conform to God's standard, not my standard, not a church's standard, not somebody else's, not grandma and grandpa's standard. I conform myself to the standard of God, the standard of the Lord Jesus Christ in integrity, in virtue, in purity, in righteousness, in the, the thinking, the correct thinking that we have in our lives, the feelings that we have, the actions that we get involved in, thinking it through and making sure that it's righteous actions, righteous thinking, God's standards, and we must conform to them. I don't care what the polls say. I don't care what politics says. I don't care what religion says. But when God says something, that's it. And that's what we're to conform ourselves to. If there's a question, don't. If there's a question, whether you should or shouldn't, don't. Because if you 
are questioning there's something wrong already. Maybe the spirit of God is trying to speak to your heart or your conscience is trying to direct you away from some hurt or some problem. He goes on and he says, therefore, God, even thy God. Now, the word therefore is because of the declaration. It goes back to the declaration that he is the son or the son is God. He says, therefore, God, even thy God, God the Father, and God the Son. You see a trinity already developing here. As he establishes the difference between the Son and the Father. But yet both are equal God. The roles of the trinity. Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus submitted himself to the Father in that role. In 1 Corinthians eleven three, 3, he says, But I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. He establishes the roles in the deity, in the trinity. He willfully submits himself to the Father, even though he is still 100% God. Jesus prayed to him. He believed him. He loved him. He obeyed him. Yet he was still God. He said, I come to do the will of him that sent me. I come to do the will of the Father. He willfully subjected himself in that role of authority even though he was God. Ladies, I know it's a dirty subject all around America, but I could care less. God said it, you are to be in submission to your husband. He is the head. Doesn't make you any less. If you think you're any less, that's making Jesus Christ less. He's not. He's equal with the Father. But in the roles that God has established in the Trinity and in the home, he is the one that established that the man, as dumb as he is, is still to be submitted to. That he's the one, the authority in the home. Now, throughout all this, we see what is called the hypostatic union. That's a fancy term. But if you're ever going to get into studying your Bible, many times you'll come up on it and you'll wonder, what in the world is a hypostatic union? That is when Jesus Christ is presented as 100% God. And at the same time, he is 100% man. As he, God, came to this earth, man was not his father. The Holy Spirit was his father. He became a man through the woman. 
and became a man that he lived, he felt, he understands just what we're going through. It says he was tempted in how many points? All points like as we. You can't go through anything that he does not understand. He was anointed by the Father. And this is a tremendous passage here. Hath anointed thee, God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He was anointed by the Father. Consecration, dedication, or setting aside. The, the Son was sun-placed. We see that over and over coming back. How is he raised above his fellows? He was sun-placed. Now he has all authority. Now he can do anything that he wants to do as God. He was set aside. He was consecrated. God hath anointed thee with that oil of gladness. There were different types of anointing. The main purpose was ceremonial. Uh, and in this ceremonial anointing, it was done on the pillar at Bethel, uh, the house of God where Jacob was. And, and, and he poured that oil down upon that rock and established that as Bethel, the house of God. It was used in the installation of the prophets and the priest and the kings as the high priest would come and he would pour the oil upon that man. When he found David, when Samuel came and anointed David, uh, he chose him out of all the other brothers and he, and he put that anointing oil upon David, setting him aside for the service of God in that position of a king. The setting aside of the tabernacle the setting aside of the Ark of the Covenant, the setting aside of the altar and the vessels and things in the, in the tabernacle, the vessels of God. And he set aside something else that I don't think we realize. In 2 Corinthians 1.21, he says, Now he which established us with you in Christ and hath anointed us is God. God the Father has set you and I, when we become Christians, he has set us aside. He has anointed us. He has dedicated us. We, we are in that, that position of consecration. That's why the very term saint is the word hagios. It's the same word separate or separation, hagios. We are to be separated unto God. We're separated there by God himself. So Jesus is anointed, he says, as the mediator to be the prophet, to be the priest, to be the king. He was anointed with the Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38 how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. He reminds us here that of 
his exalted position. He's above thy fellows. Thy fellows is man. He emptied himself and became that man. He humbled himself, became obedient, even to the death of the cross. He made himself a servant, but he was still above his fellows. And that's why it goes on to say he was found in fashion uh, as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it goes on to say God hath exalted him that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. That Jesus was not only 100% God, but 100% man. Therefore, while he was on this earth, he was subject to God as a man. That's why he had to follow the rules. That's why he followed the rules of the temple. That's why he followed the rules in the, in the synagogue when he was teaching and preaching. He followed the law all the way through. Because he was subject just as a man, though he was God. So who is Jesus? <laughs> Almighty God. So what's he done? He mentions that in verse number 10. And thou, Lord, again, God the Father addresses the Son and calls him, Thou, you, thou, Lord. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament Jehovah, the supreme authority. God has exalted him and said, you are the supreme authority. When he placed him as his son, he has all authority of the father. Notice he says, in the beginning... Hast thou found, or hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thine hands. And John 1.1 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. He was there in the beginning. And the word was with God and the word was God. In verse number three, all things were made by him and was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ has been put in a position and God the Father has told us who he is and what he has done. He's not only my son by name, he is God. And as my son, he created everything. He is the maker of everything. You were there in the beginning, it says. You are the supreme creator of everything. Not anything that was made was made without you. He is the one. That's why when Jehovah Witnesses try to change verse number one in, in, in uh, John chapter one, they say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. It's not what it says. He is God. Now stop and consider just a minute who he is. 
I want you to really stop and consider who Jesus Christ really is. Psalms 8 and verse 3 says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? When you begin to think of who Jesus is and what he has done and that we are supposed to be his servants, how dare we reject him? How dare we disobey him? How dare we keep that gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves while the world dies and goes to hell? I wept the other day when I heard that they had Five, they said 500 killed in that hospital. I, I wasn't concerned about the Palestinians. I was concerned the fact that they were lost. And it's a Baptist hospital. And I bet you not one of them has ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in a Baptist hospital. How are we doing? Do we really know who he is? Do we really understand what he has done? When you go out tonight and you get out in the parking lot or get home or something and, and hopefully the yard light's not on and everything, just lean back and look up at them stars. That's what, that's what the psalmist did. But that's also what Abram did. When he built altars to this God six different times, built altars, built altars, worshiped, sacrificed, all this, and he wasn't even saved. And God said, count the stars if thou art able. He says he holds the universe in the palm of his hand. Do you realize how big our God is? And we treat him with disrespect? We, we figure, well, I'm a little tired, so I'm going to stay home. I got a little snivel because I'll stay home. My son just preached a wedding over there with malaria. Sweat just running. Do we realize who we're serving and who Jesus Christ is? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Hebrews in chapter 1 verse 11 goes on and he says, They shall perish, talking about the creation here. They shall perish, but thou remainest. And they shall all wax old as doth a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Watch this. They shall perish. Creation is going to wax old. He's going to fold them up. It's going to be changed. 
So don't worry about this global warming junk because that's what it is. Nothing's going to happen until Jesus Christ folds it up. When he's ready, he's going to change it. Not your car putting out some emissions. You know, not your, not your stove if you're using gas. Glory. But he says, Jesus remaineth. Jesus is never destroyed. He never ceases to exist. Thou art the same. He never changes. You want to know what he's like? People say, somebody the other day when we was talking, they said, well, they, they, they said, well, that's in the Old Testament, and that was way back there, and that, and that had nothing to do with us today. We're in a different culture. We're in a different time period. Wait a minute. He changes not. He was the same in the Old Testament. He had the same, same uh, attitude toward sin in the Old Testament, the same attitude toward righteousness in the Old Testament that he does in the New. He said, he changes not. And thy years shall not fail. He is eternal. You can trust him. He will be there at the end. He will be with you. Verse 13, but to which of the angels said he at any time? Sit on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. He's quoting Psalms 110 in verse number one. It's also quoted in Matthew 22 in verse number four. Almost an exact quote. But he says, sit. Until I make that, those enemies thy footstool. You, you would never sit there until, it was, until the work was finished. I think my dad got that philosophy. <laughs> I mean, we started a job. You got that. You just did it until it was done. I don't care if we was out there till midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning. Teach your kids work ethics. Teach them that the job is, I, I got a message I preached to the military guys over there. There's always, they'd use a brush for painting and they'd just throw it down, wouldn't clean it out. I preached a message called, your job ain't finished till you clean the stinking brush. <laughs> they still remember that message. I don't remember what I said, but they remember it to this day. Your work is finished, he said. Sit down, rest in this honored place at the right hand of God the Father. Until, whenever you're going through scriptures, those time frames, he always puts these little time frames in there. He says, until. That's the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the millennial when he's put that evil down. In verse 14, he says, and they are, are, are they not, or are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Talking about the angels, he said, they're only ministering spirits. Oh, they're powerful, but that's all, that's their job. That's all they do. We're, they were created to serve God, but yet we are created to serve God too. Are we? Every person in the church should have a ministry. Every person in the church. I don't care if it's licking stamps and that's all you can do. Great. Stamp a track. That's great. Whatever. But everybody can do something. We are created to serve. To minister. They were to minister to God on our behalf. That's what the angels were there for. For our benefit. They were there to serve. 
to help us. So do we realize who Jesus is? Do we realize who we're dealing with? What if he had not written this down for us? Where would we be? He loved us so much that he wrote all this down so we could know him. We could understand him. We could have the mind of Christ. We could see what he's like and, and what he does not like. He is our God, our creator, our judge, our friend, our savior. And we should love him and obey him with all of our heart. Now I have Brother Joel. I want you to come, brother. We're going to sing a song as the invitation